Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 35 of the Retro Rents. This is a really special episode. Um, we wound up reaching out and getting to interview uh, a game designer that I grew up uh, idolizing. Uh, and she's a game. Well, she's a game designer. She's a screenwriter. She's an ant. She's written an animation. She's written books. Um, she's just absolutely prolific. Uh, her name is Christy Marks. Uh, some of you uh, might recognize her name if you've played Conquest of Camelot, Conquest of the Longbow. Um, you've definitely seen her work if you've ever seen Gem, if you've ever seen G.I. Joe, if you've ever seen Conan the Adventurer. Um, especially the Conan and Gem shows, she had a big hand in the story writing there. Uh, she's just incredibly prolific and super cool. She was so gracious to uh, not only take the time to do this interview, but we wound up um, trying to do this a week before, and we had all kinds of technical difficulties, and she was incredibly patient and just really, really awesome about, you know, the whole thing, and we wound up delaying to this week, and it went fantastic, and she wound up hanging out for well over an hour, and I just, we really appreciate it, and Christy Marks was so great. Thank you again for coming on the show, Christy, and I hope all of you listeners enjoy hearing this as much as I enjoyed talking to her. Um, it really is a big piece of our childhood, I think, as as hosts, you know, who grew up with this stuff, and I just hope you all really enjoy it. kid when I played the the Robin Hood game and the, the Conquest of Camelot and and uh, so now we're we're parents in our late 30s so <laughs> it was uh, it's it's kind of been a trip with this podcast we've started getting in touch with with uh, game designers that we kind of grew up idolizing and and you were definitely top the list so I, I you know fired out on Twitter and said oh I wonder if uh wonder if she'll 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 be interested in shoot back but um so thank you <laughs> appreciate that no problem. But uh, for uh, people that are, you know, listening when we release the episode, we are talking to Christy Marks, a, in my opinion, a prolific legend in screenwriting and writing and game design. Um, if you go to christymarks.com, uh, I don't have much to bet, but I would bet that you will find a either a cartoon or a game... Uh, that she has written or played a major part in that you have absolutely grown up and been influenced by. So, <clears throat> at least in, in my case, uh, I was I was pretty blown away um, because, again, you know, my experience uh, with your work was your stuff at Sierra initially. Or so I thought, I should say. Um, and then, you know, when I was, I don't know, I was probably early teens when... Um, Conan the Adventurer was on TV. Might have been before that, a little bit, a little bit younger. 
And that was like one of my favorite cartoons. I never missed a single one. And I didn't realize until we started reading into, you know, doing this interview that you were the, the head story writer for that. Like, was that your whole, like, were you like the head creator of that? Well, basically, that deal worked an awful lot like other animation development deals that I had done, and especially with Hasbro, because I worked extensively with ha with Hasbro over the years. Mm -hmm. So how it would typically work is that Hasbro would come up with a line of toys, and with Gem and the Holograms, it was a line of dolls for girls, and with Conan, it was a line of action figures for boys. Mm -hmm. And so they would, they would come up with the, these action figures, and then they would... Um, hire me to do the development. And in this particular case, it meant uh, coming up with the entire story that we would use for this particular series uh, that had to include, of course, all of these other action figures who became <laughs> Conan's friends. Mm -hmm. And so I had to come, you know, I had to come up with backstories for them. I didn't have to come up with the world. I didn't have to build the world, right. obviously, because we were, it was set within Robert E. Howard's Hyborian world. And what I did do was I went back to the original Howard stories, and I, yeah. I didn't look at anything else. I didn't look at any of the other um, zillions of adaptations <laughs> and extra story, stories that have been done. I just went back to the original Robert E. Howard stories and just dug through them and poured through them and and put together what's called a Bible, a series Bible, mm -hmm. so that when the, any, anybody who's going to write on the show, they get this, and it has all of the basic information that they need about the characters in the world and so forth. So um, I filled out that Bible with all the, the stuff I pulled from these stories, and I pulled other aspects from the stories to try to come up with a way to handle Conan as an animation series, because when they approached me with this, um, my first reaction was, you know that Conan is a barbarian <laughs> with a sword, and he, you know, he He's he not the most kid-friendly. <laughs> you know, I, I said, how, how do you really want to handle that in an, in an animation series? And they were, basically, it was like up to me to try to figure out how we were going to do that. And there are certain unwritten rules right. in animation writing for a certain age set where you, you do not kill living things. You can use them on rocks or robots or you know, right. un something unliving, you know, monsters and that kind of thing. And so I, you know, one of the big aspects I had to figure out for the series was how to make all of their weapons usable and interesting. Right. And I pulled something out of a Robert E. Howard story that involved star metal, a meteorite yes. that had fallen to earth and, and, and I used that as the basis of all of their weapons being made out of star metal, as you as you remember from right. the series. Right, and that's where the whole abyss... And, the, tr and the, yeah. the trick being that the evil serpent men, as soon as they come in the slightest contact with the star metal, go poof back into another dimension. Right. And so that way, that way they could actually actively use their weapons without killing anybody. <laughs> right, right. And yet still... And still be effective. So that was something I actually pulled out of, for inspiration out of the Howard story. And the other unusual thing about this particular deal, um, being hired to develop it is, is pretty standard, and being hired to be a story editor is pretty standard. Right. But they, they knew they were going to do 65 half hours. Now, usually wow. when you have that many episodes to do, 
which was a standard syndication run at the time. Okay. Usually you're gonna usually you'll have at least two story editors, maybe three, because that's a lot of work. Yeah. They offered me they offered me this deal to be the sole story editor. Oh wow. As long as I, as long as I could turn around three scripts a week. Wow. Which meant which meant that, you know, obviously I had a, a stable of extremely dependable professional writers to work with, but it, 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 it meant I would have to look at and approve three premises a week, three wow. outlines a week, and three scripts a week, because you have to have every, something in the pipeline at all times, right. because you go from premise, then they go and they write an outline, and then from the outline, once that's approved, then they go and write the script. So there had to be those things turning in the pipeline constantly and it was grueling. It was oh, I can imagine. definitely the most grueling particular oh. job I've ever had. Um, and I managed it until pretty, at the very, very, very end. Um, it kind of broke down in, into two a week instead of three a week. Right. But for the bulk of it, for the bulk of it, I actually managed to do that, which I have to say is a horrendous amount of work. Um, like I said, which is why legend. <laughs> Well, it's also why I didn't end up writing very many of them. I, I ended up writing a couple in the first 13, and I ended up writing a couple towards the end. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, I was just doing so much story editing. I had pretty much no time to uh, just oh, to I can write imagine. it. Now, you did, um, you did one of my biggest, biggest favorites on the show, which was Wind Fang's Aerie, um, which, you know, up until that point, I, I remember Windfang, you know, he was kind of a, he was a, obviously he was a villain, but he didn't really have much to him. I mean, he was just, for whatever reason, he was, you know, Rathamon's lackey and, and, you know, was foiling Conan at every chance he got. But then, you know, you give us this episode and I, I, again, I haven't, I probably haven't seen this in years, but this one really stuck with me where you find out, okay, you know, this guy was once human and he had a past and, he, you know, loved somebody that looked a lot like Jesmine, and it was just, um, for for my experience at the time, it was the first time I can really remember a villain in a cartoon for people my age that just wasn't simple evil. You know what I mean? Like he 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 was a character you could kind of I don't want to say relate to, but sympathize with. And I think that's why that one always stuck with me. I, I mean, I, I'm assuming you know your website's right. I hope I'm not attributing this to you if you didn't do it. I, no, I, I loved I loved doing that episode, and I was really going for creating a sense of pathos mm-hmm. about this character. You know, anybody can write a two-dimensional cardboard villain, but sure. that that's not quality writing that's not very good and um the way to make an interesting villain is to understand that villains don't really not a truly fleshed out villain doesn't think of himself or herself as exactly. a villain they're the, they're they're the hero of their own story yep and so and you know the what is of that theirs. story yeah and it may be a sick and twisted story <laughs> you know <laughs> which his was yeah um but but in their minds, there's a justification for what they're doing. Yep. You know, and there's an explanation for it. And so this this was just a way to to bring some depth and interesting background to the character. 
Yeah, and, uh, you know, for that series, again, I feel like it was so advanced for what was out there at the time. I mean, it really... You had depth of character. You had um, really complex plots. And, you know, one thing I discovered later in life, because I, you know, at that point in time, I hadn't read a lot of the original Howard canon. I had a few comic books that I can remember, but, uh, you know, some of them were based upon and not really... um, not really the pure canon and then I'd say when I got to college you know I got a collection of his original stuff and I was so surprised at how faithful the Conan series was to that original canon and um I have to admit ever since I had picked up those books I've been trying to find a complete set on DVD and uh it has not been successful but hopefully uh if anybody happens to be listening to this with some pull, maybe the maybe we could push one of those along. Uh, but that would be wonderful. I I would certainly love to have those myself, especially since I have now lost um, because of the campfire. Oh, I geez. lost my house and, and I lost everything that I owned, <laughs> including the some all of the common paper versions of the scripts all oh of the, that's terrible all of all all of my scripts and records on papers and all of my books all of my video games all of my oh my goodness memorabilia all of the comics i had you know thousands of comics mine and other people's comics i had carried around with me since i was a kid i'm so sorry to hear um, that yeah i mean just lost everything so i lost i had some common dvds i lost those right and i had you know, boxes of of stuff, storyboards and what have you. One really lucky thing is that um, when we first moved into the house that burned down back mm-hmm. in June of 2017, um, at that time I decided rather than hauling around more boxes and boxes and boxes of toys and collectibles and memorabilia, I ended up selling about 12 box loads of, of things, including the Conan action figures and gem stuff and, you know, many different projects that I worked on that I had toys for. I sold them to the strong museum of play in New York. Oh, really? To begin, to begin a collection, I was going to be sending them all my papers, which unfortunately now won't happen, but I did send them. They did buy pretty much everything. So at the very least, um, they have that collection of all that stuff, and those action figures and dolls and toys and other things. At least that happened. That's, that's the yeah. one good thing. Well, and, and the other good thing is that you and yours got out okay. And she's, Christy's referring to the, the California campfire that you know we all heard about. And I mean, we, we're out on the East Coast, but it was obvious how devastating that was. And um, I'm very sorry. I mean, I, I can't even imagine um what that's like i mean my wife has has lived through a house fire and that you know obviously you're happy to be okay and you're happy to have gotten out okay and you know the people around you but you know there is that kind of sense of loss of the things that you know meant something to you and and that sucks you know i'm I'm sorry like i said i'm glad Mm -hmm. you're okay but i'm really sorry that's that's awful yeah that's pretty badly it was (laughs) It was um, my husband and I, and our Subaru Impreza was packed with six cats, so six cat carriers, and um, that was about all we had room for, or very little else besides yeah. that. So 
Well, I mean, that's in the end, that's the important stuff, you know, but, you know, it's, it's good that you guys are okay. I mean, that was, it's just, it's, it's incredible when, you know, when you live out here like we do and, and you hear about things like that um, and more and more people that I talk to either from my day job or, you know, in, in some cases, like, you know, talking to you online and you start to realize how many people were affected by this um, and it's just, uh, it's, it's just devastating. I mean, I, it's, it's something that, you know, I hope that you, you know, can get back to a place of, you know, com not, I, I guess comfort is a way to put it to where, you know, you're, you feel like you're getting back to where you were. Um, I'm sure, but I'm sure it hasn't been easy. So I just hope, uh, I hope it's easy from here on out, I guess is what I'm trying to get at. But, um, yeah, no, it, it's, um, it's, it takes a lot of effort and it's, very difficult to try to reassemble your life um, right. when it's been thoroughly trashed like that. Yeah, I I can't even imagine. Um, I'm really sad too because I lost the the last original boxes I had of my Sierra games. Oh, you know, I had the the original ones, you know, from from when they were produced. Oh wow, I have my box somewhere, but obviously that's not an original. But it is the box I got from Electronics Boutique back in. 1991? God, I can't remember now. Yeah, I, yeah, I think it would have been 91, yeah. Oh, wait a minute. 89, 90. I started working at Sierra towards the very latter part of 1988. So I guess that game would have come out right about nine, maybe end of 90? Yeah, Camelot, Camelot was first, right? That was... Right. That was first. What what was it like working there at the time? I mean, and I, just some preface: my co-host Nick and I were were big big Sierra fans growing up, and it was one of those companies for us. You know, all we had to do was walk into uh, Electronics Boutique or Comp USA, and if you saw a game with the Sierra logo on the box, it was an instant buy. You know, we we loved their formula, loved their adventure games, and um, but we don't we haven't really had a chance to ever really talk to people that have worked there especially during the time you were there, which is what I would kind of consider their, their golden age. I mean, amazing games at that time. Yeah, well, to well, well right. there wasn't a model, much uh, competition at the time either. They, they were there at the beginning, at the start of all of this. Mm -hmm. and, and, of course, what's interesting is that because nobody knew anything about this, because it was all brand new, yeah. nobody, nobody thought twice about the fact that Roberta Williams was a game designer that she was designing games, you know, that right. a woman was designing games. Because there, at the time, I mean, nobody ever thought about that. There was no such consideration about no. were you male or were you female because, you know, nowadays things are really quite different. But sure. um, it was, I would, I compare it often to the Wild West. Um, <laughs> it was, it was wonderful. It was exhilarating. It was crazy. It was, um, very ad hoc. I mean, because nobody knew anything, yeah. you're basically blazing a, blazing a trail through the wilderness. And, um, and so everybody's experimenting, everybody's figuring out how these things work. And, and the wonderful thing about Sierra online is that it was, it was Ken and Roberta's playground and they yeah. could do whatever they wanted basically. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so they never thought twice about hiring someone to, design a game and that's you get jim walls who was yes, police quest. And they say, oh yeah come and come, create us a police game you know and yeah 
And um, they were really enthralled to find me because of my Hollywood background. I think they kind of had stars in their eyes about uh, Hollywood. <laughs> Rightfully so. And my, <laughs> and my husband at the time, of course, was Australian artist Peter Ledger. Yes. And that was actually how they first contacted us. They had a headhunter looking for artists because they, they had a hard time finding artists to come and move up to this little town of Oakhurst. Right. And, uh, and, and work for them, you know, certainly not exactly a hotbed of, of tech. Um, but it was a beautiful, beautiful area. It's right outside of Yosemite right. Park. So it's a gorgeous area. And Peter and I loved living up in the mountains. Anyway, we were living up in Wrightwood at the time. Oh, wow. You know, so we we certainly had no problems with the idea of moving up to a beautiful mountain town, and um, it was just a brand new opportunity. It was, um, you know, it was presented, and for me, I always like to jump at new opportunities. Yeah. Since sure. at that point, I at that point I had done broken into comics, writing for comics, writing for animation, um, live action television, and and I was always looking for new and different and interesting things to learn or to get into because I figure the more you know as a writer the the better you are, better off yeah. you are more and it's another, another medium for you exactly it's like have as many arrows in your quiver as you can if you want to survive <laughs> as a writer so uh, they contacted Peter mm-hmm. to see if he was interested and, and I was on, on the phone call and I said well hmm, are you looking for writers and they were like oh yeah and so the two of us drove up there and we had a meeting with Ken and Roberta and we just, and we ended up making a deal right on the spot oh, to come awesome. work for them. See, that's the thing that could happen. You could come and you yeah. could sit in a, a conference room with them and you talk and you walk out and can walk out of there with a deal that changes your life. <laughs> Which awesome. is, it literally did, literally did because we, you know, in, within about a month we moved to Oakhurst and, and, we're starting to work for them. And it was a very funny meeting because Dan <laughs> Roberta thought, thought that they knew a lot about Hollywood, but they didn't. And, um, <laughs> I think we all think that until we start working. You know, and, and we, we almost, almost ended up blowing the whole deal because uh, they were trying to tell us that um, Steven Spielberg knew in advance that Jaws was going to be this massive hit. And we're, and yeah, we're no. going, well, no. He didn't. And we're like, well, yes, of course he didn't. We're going, and we're like, no. Okay, <laughs> what, what kind of game would you actually like to have? And um, and another another sticking point that came up in that meeting is that I'm highly sensitive to ownership of IP and creating original IP. Yeah, and of course they insisted on having full ownership um, mm. of anything that was created was mm. created. And I said, well, that that's fine. I understand that, but that means I'm not going to create an original IP right. for you to own. And they were like, well, we've been really interested in doing a King Arthur game. And I said, I love King Arthur. I would love to do a King Arthur game for you guys. And so that's how we ended up with a King Arthur game Um, and a a Robin Hood game. I mean, these are games that I didn't mind that they held the IP. Right, it's public IP. It's kind of of wide open. Yeah. Um, So we moved up there and there was no hand-holding. There were no... There were no books. There were no courses. There were no yeah. guidelines. It was just, I walked in there and it was like I had to figure out what a computer game was and how to design it and how this worked. I just had to figure it out on my own, basically. And uh, the first thing I did, of course, was sit down and just play a mm-hmm. ton of Sierra, 
Sierra games. I just played and played and played and played because I was looking for not only what I could learn about the design and how the games worked, I was also looking for the mindset of the player. Right. And, you know, what was that? What was that mindset of the player? What were they looking for? What would they be anticipating? And I, I learned an awful lot about what not to do from playing some of the games. <laughs> you know, the places where the games would drive me crazy. I was like, okay, I got to be sure I don't do that um, sort of thing. And then I <clears throat> sat down with the artist and I said, show me your tools yeah. and tell me what you can't, tell me, show me your tools and tell me what you can and can't do. You know, what are, what are the limitations, what are the restrictions, what are the parameters, what can we do here? And then I sat down with the programmers and I did pretty much the same thing. And um, And I also said to them, what format should I do this in? And the programmers are like, oh, no, just whatever whatever you want to do. And I, I'm like, no, there must be some format that would be more useful for you or easier for you or better for you. And I, after I pushed enough, they went, okay, well, if you were to do this and this and this, it would really help. And so, you know, I kind of worked out a, a format of mm-hmm. writing my scripts that was easier for them to implement. Right. And I think that was pretty much my process was just going around to everybody involved and finding out what could we do, what was possible, what was not possible with the current tech, et cetera, and so forth. And then I sat down and I created what was the first game design document. Oh, get out. Um, I I, I also looked at, um, I also went around to all the other designers and looked at all of their quote, game designs, unquote, (laughs) which, you know, everybody had their own way of approaching it, and most of it was just some kind of a sort of loose story outline Mm -hmm. with some indication of the puzzles and so forth. Jim Walls was the most, um, to my mind, concise and and, um, well put together at, at the people that I looked at. So I looked at all of those documents, and I, I thought about every thought about all of it, and then I put together the game design document, which was a massive three-ring binder in which I wrote the story, what all the puzzles and the riddles were going to be, you know, all, the, all those various things, um, my horrible rough sketches of what of the layout of the game, of all <laughs> the different areas you would go and what all the what we called them rooms each screen was called a room you know what all of the rooms would be and then i made complete lists of all the assets we would need animation art assets sound assets what have you oh wow and i just put it all together into this massive document and i came in and i put it down and flopped it down on (laughs) the desk in front of him i said okay there you go there's the design there's the game and they just had never seen anything like that before, so, uh, so you were, that you're was like, a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're playing at least four roles in that. You know, you're 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 the game designer slash project manager. You're the analyst in the sense that you know you're trying to figure out what tools are available to you, and then deliver what you want to the designer or to the developers in a way that they're going to understand it, and. Well, and and I guess you brought up some really interesting points, and and I have to say, before I played the Conquest games, and you know I'm sure we could name a couple, um, a lot of the Sierra games were frustrating for the reason of keeping you know making it longer 
you know, or you'd run into dead ends where you'd have to start over and, and, um, you know, there, there was a lot of that. If you didn't grab this item from this room, um, and you didn't do it four screens in, you could screw up the entire game. And I remember Robin Hood and, and Camelot didn't, I mean, didn't have it to the point where you could get close to the end of the game and then realize you had to start over. Like, I, I, certain, certain things really stuck out to me, and I, I still remember, like, Camelot, uh, the draw, the, the gatehouse, you know, the gatehouse gate would come down and crush you if you didn't do all the things you needed to do before you left the castle. Um, the only thing... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, and it, but what I loved about the Conquest games, and they're the first ones I can remember from the Sierra world actually doing this, and I could be wrong, but I remember these being the first, and it really stuck with me, is... Uh, somewhat in Camelot and much more so with uh, Longbow was multiple endings where you could get to the end of the game and have, you know, depending on your actions, a, a different ending. Um, granted, Camelot not so much in that you would die in the final scene. Like, I remember there was one time I had already beaten the game and gotten the good ending, and I was like, ah, what would happen if I just walked back across the ice and left Lancelot there and just continued my Grail quest? And I uh, remember you get turned to ashes when you try to touch the grail. And I was like, all right. <laughs> you know, that's a satisfying ending. But um, what I loved about Longbow, and I remember replaying this game many times over the years to make sure I had seen all the different endings. And I think there was like five or six. You know, there's like the really good ending where he gets knighted and can marry Marion and there's the really bad ending where you get hanged and like but <laughs> <laughs> there was like all these in-betweens and it was I just remember that being a first and I, I you know when we realized we were setting up this interview I started playing it again and I was like you know so, some games simply don't hold up but Longbow especially is one that really does and Camelot and I think what blows me away with both of those games, especially now that I'm an adult and I've done a lot more reading of myth and folklore and a lot of the stuff that inspired these games. And, and maybe if you if you could go into that, like it seems like you guys really did a deep dive on the Robin Hood folklore, especially. Um, well, on both of them, actually. Because, well, yeah, and I mean, Camelot, too. I'm... I'm very, very big on research, and so I did massive amounts of research in, mm -hmm. on both games. Dig, both games, digging into all of the legends and mythology, mm -hmm. and and they, they were similar in that um, they they both have accretions, like you know, there may or may not have been a warlord in the right fifth century, you know, who was the basis for Arthur, but then there were all these, through the centuries, all these accretions, that things that got added on to the basic mythology. And, yeah, the cycles. You know, you, you get the, the, the grail stuff, you know, that yep. was a fairly, that was a later accretion, and, and bringing Maid Marian in, and all of this stuff, and, you know, the, it built up over time, and saying with Robin Hood, they were, it started out as, as scraps of ballads about a trickster yep. character and, and, and morphed and became, you know, got added on to it. So I, I did lots and lots of research and um, I got special books and, oh, and cool. did all different things like that. Uh, and there's 
like especially on Robin Hood, there were a lot of places that actually are real places mm-hmm. um, that I lear- learned about in the course of doing the research. And, and I contacted the Museum of Nottingham and, and learned all kinds of good stuff from them. And they you know, bought some um, maps and, and oh, sketches wow. of the original castle and things from them, and learned about the trip to Jerusalem pub and all, all this kind of cool stuff. And and some of the other things I learned about from friends, like in the con- in Camelot, um, going to Gaza in the Middle East. I yep. had a friend who was from had lived in Jerusalem, and so she told me about the Pool of Siloam, and and so I got I just pulled from all kinds of different sources um, to to find this stuff. And and only much much later did I actually get to go to some of these locations, like which was oh. really cool. I go to Glastonbury awesome. Tour and go to Nottingham, and you know that. And I went to the trip to Jerusalem pub and, you know, that was really awesome. Oh, but man. backtracking a little bit on what you were saying, well, I approached these, of course, as a storyteller mm-hmm. and in a strong storytelling sense, to me, I couldn't see telling a story that did not involve moral choices. And I didn't understand at the time that this was different and that this hadn't really been done. And it was only after the game came out and a lot of reviewers been, been, were raving about the fact that it actually had moral choices in it, like the first game, Yeah. that I, began, that I realized, oh, okay, this is something different. This is something that hadn't been done. I'm not, I'm not sure why. And I guess just because of, of my basic approach to moral choices, it was like, well, if people are going to make these choices, there has it has to add up to something at the end. There has to be mm-hmm. a difference to it. And so all of this was just in Camelot was me learning the entire format of designing a game. It, like right. I said, there were no roadmaps. There were no courses. It was all just brand new. So a lot of it was me figuring out what it was and how it worked. Mm-hmm. And th- then by the time I got to the second game, I had so much that I had learned from the first game that it it enabled me to make the second game that much richer and deeper and and add so many more layers to it. Plus, the first game had a much more limited technology. It had yep. parser-based technology, so yeah, that was an interesting challenge. challenge on t- <laughs> exactly, 16 colors, which Peter hated. He oh, hated I, can imagine. I can imagine an artist despising that. But all things oh, he did. considered, he, he, he hated did beautiful it. work. He did do nice work, and that was the last game he worked on for them because he just couldn't stand it. <laughs> he hated it so much. <laughs> you know, and then with the second game, we had the brand-new, innovative point-and-click uh, interface. Yes. So that was another whole set of challenges there. And and uh, that, again, changes how you design oh, a yeah. game and what you, what you think you can accomplish with the game. Um there was something else I was going to comment on about. Now I've completely lost my train of thought. But it was, uh, but it was those, those, moral, <laughs> those moral choices to me are, were really important. Oh, and it it, they, were, they were very simple ones in the first game because not only because of the technology, because I was learning what to do. Oh, yes, that's the other thing. The other thing I had to learn while I was doing the first game mm-hmm. was interactivity and nonlinear writing which was something yeah. just completely un- unknown. Oh, yeah. A new, completely different way of thinking. And I I thought that I was getting it. They kept saying to <laughs> me, you know, 
you have to be more nonlinear. I forget the exact words they use, but nonlinear, you know, has mm-hmm. to be more interactive. And I, and I, I kept thinking, okay, I think I'm doing that. I think I'm doing that. Right. And then we were, we were about halfway through. We had about half of the game done. And we took it down, they took it down to a little uh, game convention of some kind in, in Fresno, down mm-hmm. in Fresno. And they, let, they set the game up and they let, they let people just come in and, and play it, bash away at it. And so I stood there and, and observed people how they approached the game, and I, it just shredded my brain <laughs> because people would not apply any logic whatsoever. <laughs> They're not playing this they, like they, I want them to. <laughs> I mean, they, I, I, I stood there watching these people, and I'm like, why are you doing that? And it's like, they're complete agents of chaos. I mean, it made no <laughs> sense at all. But I walked away from that experience finally getting a handle on what they were talking about yep. by non, non-linear because I tend to think in a kind of a logical way. I think, oh, when I walk into a room, I'm going to want to do this and I'll do yep. that and I'll do that. And of course the players, that's what the player, any player would do, right? Because that just makes sense. Well, no. Yeah, you're, you're <laughs> writing. Not what they necessarily are going to do. And so it just totally changed my point of view around because I, I understood that I had to approach it as just utter chaos, utter lack of logic, that people would not think the way I thought and that I yeah. had to take all of that into account. And so that really helped uh, to inform what I learned as a game designer. Yeah, you're, you're going from writing, well, the player will probably do this and they'll probably do that to, well, they could do this technically and they, they could do that. And in a sense, you have to you have to plan for that and write for that. I, I can imagine that's incredibly challenging. Um, oh, very, very much so. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, so you can't you can't you can't think. Oh, they're going to walk into the room and they'll go look at this and they'll go look at that and they'll go talk to this person. No, they might just turn around and walk right out of the room without doing anything, and and you just have to be ready for all of that. Oh, that's that is wild. But yeah, I mean, the other thing that. that no, go ahead. Yeah, the other thing that was fun uh, that was fun on the first game is that the programmers introduced me to Easter eggs. <laughs> and I I had of course never heard of this. I had no idea these this sort of thing existed, but I remember I remember one day the programmers rather nervously said, "Um, we want to show you something." <laughs> If, if, and if you type in ham and jam and spam a lot and they and they typed it in and they showed me what happened. And oh I think they were waiting for me to be like pissed off or upset or something. And I just laughed my ass off. I said, this is wonderful. We have to do more of these. <laughs> oh my God. I never even knew about that one. I, all right. I know what I'm installing tonight. <laughs> now, in my own defense, I hadn't seen Monty Python search for the Holy Grail, but it's not when I had played Camelot. I was, uh, that was another year or two away yet. <laughs> <That's> okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. There were there were definitely some Monty Python jokes in there. Oh, I gotta but play that, that was, one again. Uh, you know, that was wonderful fun to learning about Easter eggs and and like, oh yeah, we got to do some fun stuff here. Yeah. I mean, thankfully, I started understanding that when uh, by the time I had gotten into the Quest for Glory series, which I think took the Easter egg notion and just cranked it up to eleven. Uh, <laughs> I remember running into Groucho well, Marx. Well, Groucho. Yeah, Lori and Corey are, are very funny, so I, I could see them doing that. Yeah, they're, 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 that's 
the Conquest series and the Quest for Glory series were my, my two favorites out of Sierra. I mean, a lot of people would pick King's Quest, which was great. You know, I enjoyed my time with King's Quest, but those, the Conquest series always stuck out to me again for the, the moral choices and, and the multiple endings and just the rich, rich lore. I mean, I, you know, with King's Quest, it was an, it was sort of an original property, but it was based on a lot of fairy tales and, and that was cool. But the ones that I loved growing up were Robin Hood and King Arthur. They were like my two favorites and going to be, you know, getting a chance to live through that folklore and what would I do and, and how would I, you know, interact. Uh, that was like the first time I really had a chance to live that lore. And I think that's one of the reasons it always stuck with me. <clears throat> but, um, yeah, they're, 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 they're very much a mix of adventure games and RPGs. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh but the, the conquest... I want to give Lori and I want to give Lori and Corey a plug if I could because they they have done a new game. Hero you. Crowdsourcing or I'm not sure if they crowdsourced it or did a Kickstarter on it or they, not, but I know they it's did a out Kickstarter, there and... yeah. Yep. Hero you. I love it. I have it. Excellent. Um, yeah, and 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 yeah, it's it's called Hero You. Um I've mentioned it actually on on the podcast before. Um, for Quest for Glory fans, like it, it's a must grab. You know, if if you're fans of Laurie and Corey Cole, uh, the humor, the puns, and just the the very spirit of those Quest for Glory games, uh, absolutely pick that up. Hero U is is such a a fun bla- blast and and back to the uh, blast of the past. And I, I compared it the <laughs> other day. I, I said, imagine uh, Quest for Glory meets Harry Potter. And that's kind of what it feels like with the whole school setting and the, you know, whereas Quest for Glory, you're going out and getting your hands dirty and fighting, you know, ogresses and dragons and hero you, you're actually like at the school learning how to be a hero, sort of, maybe a rogue. Or... <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, going, going from computer games for a bit, because uh, uh, talking about longbow my wife had come in and saw me playing longbow she says wow this is a really beautiful game and that got us on the conversation of the interview and i was explaining some of your work and she is an enormous gem fan and i did <laughs> again i did not know that you were like the sole story uh creator head honcho you know they made the figures and you did the the story and the lore um I, I, I kind of asked, like, what was your inspiration for the character and that lore? I mean, because that, that was one of the biggest cartoons for for a couple years. It was huge. I, I would say probably the biggest fandom I have out there is for Jim. Mm-hmm. I, I have, I have like, an interesting career because I've worked in the animation field, of course, comics field, video game field television live action television field and they all have their different individual fandoms and Mm -hmm. and even those fandoms are further splintered there'd be like within animation there's a massive gem fandom out there and there's a gi joe fandom and a ninja turtle fandom and Mm -hmm. and so it's kind of interesting because i never know what direction people are are coming (laughs) at me from but but there are there are gem conventions that i've been and i've been to most of them oh that's cool um, <clears throat> yeah, and there's one again this this year, of course. I think it's in Buffalo, New York, if I remember correctly. Um, oh, but I won't get that us. one, unfortunately. I might have to babysit the but, kids um, so the wife can come up. 
<laughs> yeah. So Jen, Jen was definitely a big one, and it was mm-hmm. also my first development deal. I had been writing for GI Joe. Yep. Uh, and so, and I had gotten to know the people at Sunbow, and they they really really loved my work, and um, they approached me. And and as I said before, Hasbro would develop the toy lines, mm-hmm. and so they already had they had a line of dolls. Right. And a, a man named Bill, a man a man named Bill Sanders had come to them with a concept that was about a rock star with a secret identity and a holographic computer, you know, and he had come to them with that, that basic concept and sold it to them. And so then they built a line of, of dolls for girls mm-hmm. on that concept. So they, they had the, the basic um, foundation in place in right. that there was a rock star with a secret identity. She had the holographic earrings. She had the computer synergy she had the boyfriend Rio. There was the bad girl band in opposition. And she <laughs> had these, you know, her her band members because they were all dolls, of course. Yeah. But all they all they actually had for them were the product names, which kept changing. <laughs> I mean, nothing, oh, that makes it easy. <laughs> no, I, I'm I'm not kidding. It, it would drive you absolutely crazy. <laughs> so originally she originally she was called M, and her name was Morgan. Uh huh. And then they discovered, and then they ran into problems because you can't really copyright a letter of the alphabet. So oh. she went from being M, went from being M to being Jem and Jerica. She, I think, at one point she was Misty, and then she became Morgan, and then, and then, Aja was originally Jade, and oh, wow. Stormer was Rue, and I mean, they all had the only one I think who didn't have a name change. Was pizzazz <laughs> and, and Rio? Okay, I think those are the only two. I think those are the only two <laughs> that along the way did not ch- change their name. And I was, it was like every day I was trying to figure out who was who and and you had to change that in the writing. And, yeah. Oh my <laughs> yeah. god. <laughs> That's why all all the original scripts, um, which exist, you know, it was the early, early, early days of computers. Because yeah. when I started, I'll backtrack, I'll backtrack a bit, when I started writing for G.I. Joe, the story editor I worked with was Steve Gerber. Mm-hmm. And I hope you all I hope you all know who Steve Gerber was. He was a wonderful man, brilliant talent. But Steve said, if you want to write for me for this show, you have to do it on computer. Right. So I had to literally go out, buy a computer, Figure out how to use a computer, which huh. we're talking the earliest days of computers. And I bought a what was called a K Pro 10, and so it's you know single color monitor. Oh wow! It was the it was the first hard drive, and I want you to prepare yourself. It had a whopping 10 megabyte hard drive in wow. it, and it was it was running a program called WordStar on an operating system called CPM. So. So MS DOS hadn't even been invented yet. I hear so, George R. R. Martin still uses WordStar to write his books. I've heard that a long time ago too. It's possible. I think it's still around. Yeah. But um <laughs> Good heavens. So that that was where I got started writing scripts on computer, but oh, wow. you know, it was still it was still pretty primitive and and so some of the earliest scripts only existed in paper form. Mm-hmm. 
and I, you know, because the electronic forms had, when we switched, I switched at some point from CPM to MS-DOS, and then there were various versions of MS-DOS and so right. forth. And, un, and unfortunately, by the time it occurred to me the years down the road, that maybe I should convert some of these CPM files over to MS-DOS, it was virtually impossible to do. Oh, <laughs> so yeah. it, uh, things kind of, kind of, it taught me a lot of, a lot of lessons about formatting and saving and so forth. And document preservation. So, <laughs> good heavens, on yeah. computers at least, yeah. Crazy. So the names kept changing, and the the um, instruments that they were playing kept changing, and all these things just you know like please, please make up your mind. Oh man! And 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 uh, but at any rate, uh, they originally hired me to write that series as um, 15 short segments that were like about six minutes each, I think. And it was part of a a half-hour block that was called Super Saturday or Super Sunday, depending on where it ran in in the market. Right. And the first first segment was a boy action series of some kind. Mm -hmm. The middle segment was Jim. And then the third segment of the half-hour was another boy action thing and so they kept giving me these really schizophrenic instructions because <laughs> Jim was for Jim was for girls and so okay it's got to have fashion and the romance and the glamour but it's got to have this hard cliffhanger endings because we're just terrified that the boys are going to change the dial and so, right. <laughs> so it was like they every one of these little 15 segments had these cliffhanger endings which you can see yeah. you know they were then when they decided to make it its own series, they then took those fifteen minute segments, fifteen segments, and compiled them into the first half hours oh. of the show. And so you can you can see that you know if you sit there watching those first <laughs> five half hours, you can you can see that weird structure, that really hard cliffhanger endings on every one of those act breaks. Oh, plus, wow. they weren't quite lo- they weren't quite long enough to be a half hour on their own. So we, I also had to go back through and find places here and there where we could add, like add a know, frame thirty seconds, yeah. Yeah, thirty yeah. seconds of some new material or you know what oh, have wow. you to, to to flesh them out to to the full length. So it was a really interesting process up front, but. Um, I took the basic concepts that they had, and then um, I was allowed. I had the fun. I was allowed to create who they were. Who were these characters? What were their mm-hmm. full names? What was their background? How did they? What were their relationships? And I created Starlight Music, and I made Jerrica. Yeah. You know, this became became the owner of the Starlight Music from her. I invented her father and her whole father, her whole background in creating Synergy, and I came up with Eric Raymond, who I named after my brother, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, he loves it, he loves it, and, awesome. um, <clears throat> you know, created the whole relationship, I came up with the Starlight Foundation and the Starlight Girls and the whole Foster Girl thing, so so all of the story material did come from me, and um, it was a lot of fun, oh, <laughs> it was a lot of fun, it was a, a lot of freedom in developing that series. And I, that is awesome. Like, I know, I, I mean, from my wife's perspective, and I, I, I totally stole from her a bit and told her I would. Because, again, I, I didn't, you know, I was pretty young at that point, too, and I, I hadn't caught that. Um, I'd probably seen one or two episodes in passing, but she was a real fan, and she started explaining to me, like, the things that resonated with her. You know, these were 
strong characters and they were badass and you know it was something that you know you know got her inspired in a sense and i and her, she she was talking to me about the toy line and <clears throat> she said one of her favorite things about the toy line was that you know at the time everybody you know everyone had barbies and barbies were you know ridiculously proportioned you know not realistic to girls like her who weren't you know and nobody really is that the barbie appearance and she loved the gem dolls because they looked more like her you know or they were more realistic and and um i i i'm guessing the like you said the toys were made first but did you have any influence on the toy line as like the story went further along or uh was that kind of always uh, came no, before no no yeah i i didn't really have anything to do at all Okay. Um, with the the toy, toys or the development of the toys or anything like that, that was a lot of incredibly talented people um, at Hasbro that that were behind that. Mm -hmm. uh, they did end up creating dolls based on some of the Starlight Girl characters that I created, for which I did not get any participation whatsoever. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good lord! But I mean that again. That was. The, the yeah it was the third most watched children's program in 1987 and when you're talking about shows like gi joe and all the stuff that was around i think that was the time when the mario brothers show hit if i remember correctly um you know there was a lot on tv at that time to grab kids attention and the fact that that was the third most watched one i mean again I always say, you know, sure the toys help, but it's the writing that that keeps people coming back and you know, that's that's a big credit to you during that time that, you know, this was a, a show about kick-ass girls, and it was high up there. So and that, it's just awesome. That's... It's the power of story. I mean, but the gem was interesting in that I think it was the perfect storm of a whole combination of really amazing elements. Mm -hmm. And, you know, part of it, I think, was just the design, the overall look and design. Part of it was the music because, yeah. you know, we had these and had this great music and, and lyrics and, and we had the MTV video style videos in the, in the show. That's right. We had terrific artists. We had terrific voice talent. I mean, you just everything just came together mm -hmm. and, and really amazed. It was amazing. That is awesome. Um, damn. And lots of great writers. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I like that you brought that up too because, I mean, I... You know, I'm 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 the the wannabe author someday. You know, I've got four books sitting in a trunk at this point, and even I kind of have the misconception, as I'm sure a lot of people do, that either write or even don't write, and just look at the industry, that it's just one person behind this. You know, and it and it is in the sense that you have the main story editor, and and that's the person, you know, like you that that you know where the story you want it to go, but you know you have other writers giving input and 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 doing that, and it it just. I'm glad that to again, you know, kind of reinforce this stuff like this is always a, a collective effort, and I mean it. it exactly, just... it's an extremely collaborative medium, and and I should point out that um, I wrote about twenty-two of the sixty-five episodes, I believe, wow. and one of the reasons I I was able to do that is because I wasn't story editing. At first, right. uh, they hired me. To do, they hired me to do development and do a lot of the writing. And then our story editor was Roger Slifer, um, who tragically is is gone. Um, mm -hmm. Roger 
was the victim of a hit and run. Oh, jeez. And the, the, the coward that hit him uh, escaped, and I don't think they were caught, and he tragically died about a year later from his uh, severe head injuries. Oh. But he was our story editor on that, and it was only later as we got into towards the end of the, of the 65 that I was able to do some of the story editing, split some of the story editing with him. But for the most part, I was uh, developing the various characters. And of course, they kept adding new characters. And so I did mm-hmm. all of that development work and, the, and lots and lots of writing. So it was a lot of fun. Must have been very creatively stimulating. That's awesome. And and Hasbro was pretty much hands-off. Sunbow was wonderful. They were wonderful people to work for. They were just absolutely amazing people to work for. And they truly valued writers and were really very good to us. And uh, and we had a pretty good amount of freedom. I think it reflects in the work. I mean, in the results, I think it does. Like, you can, even with, you know, Jem, with Conan, with, you know, G.I. Joe, you, you can just tell the people writing those shows were having fun and enjoying their work. Um, yeah, and, and there was a whole, there was a whole group of us. We all became good friends and, mm-hmm. uh, got to work with one another on various projects. It was really true. Because, like, Roger Slifer then wrote scripts for me on Conan. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> you know, cause I, so I pulled, you know, I pulled Roger into that. So <laughs> Your turn. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's awesome. Um, all right. So that that's... The... And Roy Thomas. Roy Thomas, Roy... by the way, that was a... That's another fun thing about Conan, Roy is that Thomas. I was able to hire Roy Thomas... Who Roy, of course, who was editor of Marvel Comics oh. when he introduced Con- when he introduced Conan in comic format. Stanley's that was like the beginning, successor. the beginning, the beginning of bringing Conan back into the popular culture. Really, oh. was Roy Thomas created the, the Conan the Barbarian comic, and, and you know brought that to life and, yes. and wrote a lot of that. And um, my first credit. As a writer, my first real professional credit was a Conan story in a comic book called Savage Sword of Conan. And Roy was the one who gave me my break. So Roy Thomas gave me my break in writing for comics. And he bought that one and he bought, uh, and then Red Sonia. The next stories I did were Red Sonia stories. And so, you know, the whole whole big wheel turns, this big cycle turns, and, you know, Roy is been a very very dear friend ever since and then i was able to bring him in on that, the conan animation series so that, oh, that was that's awesome that was really great <laughs> that was great i loved being able to do that yeah stan lee's first successor yeah that is fantastic well i worked with stan lee very closely too back in the beginning of my animation career because that was when stan established marvel uh animation oh wow. and so the first my first, the first animation stuff I worked on, Fantastic Four, yes. the storyboards by Jack, storyboards by Jack Kirby, and uh, and I worked with Stan very closely on just a bunch of stuff over at Marvel Animation, Marvel Productions, I should say. What was it like working with him during that time? I mean, I'm sure it was jaw dropping. I just it, um. He, he was great. He was a terrific person. I I really liked Stan. He was mm-hmm. very good to me and. You, you know, he may not have totally understood animation exactly, but <laughs> but then again, uh, the whole notion of having writers write animation scripts was actually fairly new. 
Right. Um, that was a, a somewhat of a new thing. And um, it, was, it was, again, it was like getting into video games when I did, where there wasn't really an established roadmap. It was kind of like that when I started writing animation, because having writers do the scripts was also still kind of a new thing. And so when I started working on the Fantastic Four series, they didn't just have me write the script and send it to be storyboarded. They had me write like a story or an outline Mm -hmm. and it went to Jack Kirby. Jack Kirby then did the storyboards and then the storyboards came to me and then I wrote a script with dialogue to go with the storyboards, which is is not how it, I mean, it's really was not the standard way of, (laughs) didn't become the standard way of doing things at all. And then after that, from that point on, it went to just writing full animation scripts. But, um, it, it was uh, it was great. It was great. I, I loved the way things started out and then developed. And just kept learning all the time. That's amazing, though, in, in that you have really been at the forefront of pretty much every medium you've ever worked on. You know, when it comes to animation, when it comes to computer games, you really got to kind of help blaze that path for for people today um yes to some to some degree not comics of course but well, well, right right not comics <laughs> but, but but i mean you know these other mediums you know especially when you when you look at computer games um you really yeah you really did hit at a time where and i remember as a consumer you you never quite knew what was going to come out and i think that was why sierra was such a uh a quick mainstay was they kind of they had their formula they had their adventure game formula and you knew you were going to get a a good story and in the case of your longbow and camelot games very challenging puzzles i remember at the age of 10 it took myself and my dad with his help almost an entire weekend to solve the riddles of the stones uh, <laughs> in camelot uh, that was fun <laughs> but i i had to share this with you when it came to longbow um, I had never heard of this game until we played it, and the Sierra Box, like many computer games at the time, came with uh, what they call feelies. You know, they had little extras. And one of the things that was in my Sierra Box was a little Nine Men's Morris board, and or Nine Man Morris board, and the instructions of how to play it. And, you know, that was the game you play in the Jerusalem Tavern to, A, win the... the Gem that keeps you sober, if I remember correctly, it doesn't get you drunk. Yeah, yeah, that's that's in, you play that in the abbey against the monk, the, actually against the abbot. Right, right, right. That's right. Yeah. And um, but I, I to this day because of that game, my dad, you know, who's who's in his uh, late sixties now, we'll we'll break that out once in a while. We'll still play Nine Men's Morris on a, a little hand drawn thing, all because of that game. It was just one of those weird things my dad and I shared and. You know, he's kind of the, the tough outdoorsman, but he really got into a lot of those Sierra games and the puzzle solving. And, uh, yeah, I just, I, 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 it's a very vivid memory with, with Longbow. Uh, it was just one of the things he and that, I. That's uh, very, that's very cool. That was one of those games that came up in my research that is actually um, an incredibly ancient game. Yeah. And but... there, there are, there are examples of that game being <clears throat> scratched into rock in places where soldiers were were stationed and you know using it to pass the time and that's wild uh, it was just a fun thing to be able to put in there 
there's there's tons of little things like that and the the druid code the hand code and the riddles just such a rich game anybody listening if you haven't played that game um it's it's easy to get nowadays in fact i think it uh it's, might be on your your site uh, it's also in the um the internet archive not any longer oh, <laughs> not, not any, any longer, longer. Uh, well, no um I did that for a while because I knew there was no other way for people to get the game at right. all. But, and then what happened was that um, GOG.com. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's GOG, right. GOG. GOG.com. They did uh, a, um, what's the word I want, a conversion okay. to make the game playable so that they're selling the games to their site. And so at that point, I got a takedown notice, and I, I took them down off <laughs> my site, which was fine because well, mainly I just wanted yeah. people I just wanted people to be able to play them, and now they actually had a, a place they could go and you know, get working uh, versions of the games and actually yeah. be able to play them. So yes, GOG.com has them there. Yeah, highly, highly recommend them to everybody listening. I mean, if you want to see a shining example of some of the best Sierra games ever made when it comes to lore and just an incredible experience, and again, you know, think back to what we're talking about here, especially when it comes to Camelot and definitely Longbow. You know, games with multiple endings at that point in time hadn't happened, so these were incredibly revolutionary. But aside from that, I think you're you're going to find a story there that is still, and, and again, I, I was replaying it as, as recently as this week, it is incredibly rich and incredibly well written, um, so I highly recommend it. Um, but I, I did want to fast forward here to the present day. Um, you know, we've, we've talked a bunch about your past, um, which again, it, it just, you're one of the most prolific creative artists. So I can't imagine, um, you ever stopping working. So I was curious, you know, what, what is, for one, like, what is your writing process like today? If you're working on a project, um, you know, how, how do you approach a project with your writing process? Well, it really would depend very much upon which medium we're talking about. Um, All right, so and of course, my life right now is is, is kind of chaotic. Sure. But um, I, I spent six years working at Zynga, okay. the game company Zynga. And as there, I ended up as one of many narrative designers there, but ended up being the very last one standing by the time that I left, because mm-hmm. Zynga unfortunately just did not place a lot of value on, on story and on writing. Mm. But I did manage to work on, on a number of interesting games there and, um, of course, learned a huge amount about mobile games and, sure. and working for mobile games. You know, So I was doing almost exclusively that uh, during that six-year time period, except with the exception of writing some comics for DC. I, I did the Amethyst reboot for DC, and I did... Birds a run on Birds of Prey for DC, and then I did a few other like a Green Arrow two part story, part of the Convergence event, and some other things like that. Because um, I just didn't have time when working as Inga it was such a, a time suck that there wasn't really much time for doing doing anything else. But I I tend to sit and think a lot, you know. I, sure. If I if I need to do research, I, if I need to do research, I do a lot of research. But when I was, for example, when they asked Dan DiDio called me up and asked me to if I'd be interested in doing the Amethyst reboot, well, I remember reading the comics back in the eighties because I've yeah always been into comics, and I said, oh yeah, that sounds great. That would be a lot of fun. And so I I 
went back and looked at the, the original comics again and read them again, tried to get a feel for it, and then thought about, okay, what would I like to do with that now for today, for today's audience? And, and I did a lot of world building. I did a tremendous amount of world building for it because I like to make sure that everything is consistent. The most sure. important thing with doing fantasy is, is having consistency. You have to decide what are the rules of your world and then you have to stick with that. It doesn't yeah. it can be as outrageous as you want them to be, but once you establish what those rules are, you can't break them. Right. You know, you can't have you don't have Harry Potter showing up with a machine gun instead of a <laughs> wand, you know, and you know You have to know your so rules you, and know what you you're talking to, about in your world. Like it has to make sense. Exactly. So I, I spend a a lot of time just world building or thinking about how things are gonna work together and you know what drives the characters, how the characters are going to interact together, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So when I left Zynga, um, that was when we bought the, the house up in the Paradise area. Mm-hmm. And I was working on a rewrite of a book that I did called Writing for Animation, Comics, and Games. I have that book. Uh, the, yeah, so that, that <laughs> you know, the first edition of that book, and, and they've... I'm now under contract to, to produce a revised, updated second edition, and I was—I had gone through the animation chapters, the comics chapters, and I was working on the games chapters when the house burned down. So, I have to finish that. <laughs> I have to have to complete that, mm-hmm. and then I would. Then I think I'm probably going to turn my attention back to a project that I began, that was interrupted, which was a a, a gem memoir. And memoir Ooh. about my life as a writer, my life as a writer up to and about uh, creating Gem and about the whole animation series, which um, we've been dubbed the Gemoir. That... So I would like to get back, get back to doing that, and then I would like to actually sit down and just maybe write some novels because that's the one thing I have yet to do in my entire career is um, just to write a novel. Oh man, and you know it's it's. That's oh god, that's crazy to me because like you are just again one of the most prolific writers I've I've seen when it comes to all these different mediums, and I had I had wanted to learn how to write for animation and for comics, and I was looking for books, and I was looking at that one, and I hadn't even looked at the author name yet, and then I did, and I'm like, wait a minute, Robin Hood Christie Marks, and I wound up grabbing it, and. It, it, it so that's like your your foray into I, I guess not novels but like nonfiction book writing. It's just it's amazing to me all these mediums that you've crossed. Um, I've actually written written something like seven or eight nonfiction books, but most of those were um, educational books for uh-huh. uh, fifth grade fifth graders. For a, it was a particular publisher that would just do whole these series of educational books, nonfiction books. So I did things like. Um, Biography of Jet Li and of the oh, of wow. the of the Wachowski brothers who were at the time the <laughs> brothers and sisters. Yes, um, a book a book about the Chicago Great Fire and oh, wow. um, a book about the discovery of DNA, Watson and Crick, and and a book about Grace Hopper. And uh, yeah. so I I've done, done a bunch of these little educational nonfiction books. You, you haven't yeah, been able to unleash your world yet, you know, the world that you've had in your head. Which, <laughs> oh my god, I can't wait to read. <laughs> uh, what what advice would you give 
to future creators, if any, but you know, anybody out there listening that, that might want to be a writer, uh, or might want to break into any of these mediums, uh, you know, anything you'd, you'd like to say to them. It's a tough thing to do and you have to be very determined and you have to have a very thick skin and you have to know what you're doing. And by know what you're doing, I, I mean, there's, I divide it out into, into two levels. There's the art of writing and there's the craft of writing. Mm-hmm. Art writing really really just depends on you as a writer discovering your own voice. What is what is your inner voice? What do you have to say and how do you like to say it? You know, and that that is the art part. But then there's the whole gigantic craft part. And that that's really knowing and understanding the medium that you work in. So sure. if you're going to write for animation, you have to know an animation script is and how it, what the components are and how you put it together and how to think visually. Mm-hmm. And that same, with, same with a comic book script. You have to know comics. You have to understand that medium of storytelling and comics, how that works, how to think that way, what a, what a script looks like, how, you know, how it functions. So you have to learn all of the craft as well. Yeah. And you have to learn about the business you know, you you can't just sit back and be purely a creative type. You really have to understand the business of animation sure. and the business of comics and the business of video games because that's equally vital. To yeah, you have to understand your audience. To achieving anything. Well, there's that too. That's, that's another part of it as well. And um, they're all going to be difficult to break into, but... You just have to find a way, and you find a way by learning how the business operates and where the entrance points are. I mean, a lot of which I cover in my book and will be covering in the updated version of the book. And there's no one way to break into any of these. I mean, a lot of people will say, this is how you break in. And usually they say that because that's how they broke in. Yep. And, you know, I, I can't give people advice on breaking in the way I did because my opportunities were radically different sure. than the kind of, than the way things are today. And it's much harder now, actually, I think. Mm-hmm. So, but the whole key is you just, you find a way. Yep. You just be creative, you be inventive, you learn, you research, and you find whatever door it is that will open for you that will, that will get you in. And it, it may not be just writing at first, Right. Like in games, sometimes people, if a lot of people at um, at Zynga would move into game design first from being like, say, a game tester or yeah. something, some other field that might be a programmer or whatever, but Zynga would allow those kind of opportunities. And so you have to find out what kind of companies will allow those opportunities if possible. Or if you want to break into other forms of writing, you might have to become a writer in some other field first and prove yourself. Yep. And there are different ways to do that, you know, because it's going to be pretty rare that you can just jump full blown into an animation writing job or comics writing job or a video game writing job. But the other thing that's very different now, of course, is that now there are courses all over the place. Colleges and universities have a, shit ton of, <laughs> of game design, game design courses, game writing, narrative design courses. None of those things existed before, but now they all exist and right. they're all going to be beneficial towards trying to break in. But you're still going to have to prove yourself. You're still going to have to do the work. You're still going to have to write samples. 
-hmm. and examples of your work. And you're still going to have to find a way to prove yourself and then try to get in a door somewhere. Christy Marks, this has been incredible. Um, I just want to say thank you so much for taking this time with us. And I would definitely ask slash beg when you write those novels and or if you have anything else you ever want to promote, uh, we'd be happy, thrilled to have you on again and uh, and talk about whatever you're working on or whatever's coming around the around the corner for you. But, that would be great. I would love that. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. I apologize for all the uh, technical difficulties we had last week, but um, thank you again for your time for your incredible career and all the stories you've shared with me, particularly being completely selfish. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed most of your work growing up that I got to experience uh, any of, well, any of your work that I got to experience firsthand, I thoroughly loved. And the majority of it has stuck with me so fiercely. It's just, I think it's a testament to the stories you tell. And uh, I can't wait to see what you're working on next. Right. Terrific. All righty. (laughs) thank you again and again hope to have you on when you have another project uh, another novel or if you want to come on and talk video games I don't care you're welcome back anytime (laughs) (laughs) alright that that sounds like a good deal thank you very much and have a great weekend alright bye 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 now